chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice, one of one, crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Man, I read that. I look about the time that we're living in. I know that's relevant to the time that, uh, that, that came after Christ's birth with John the Baptist as the, as the great prophet preparing the way for the Messiah. But these words, I think, ring true for us today as his disciples. Prepare the way for the coming of the Lord who is going to return. Make straight his path. And it says in verse 4 that John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judah and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, considering their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and, his, and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. Indeed, I baptize you with water, but he, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And, and immediately, I want you to try to pay attention to those words and maybe even underline that word immediately as it, it shows up in this chapter often. But immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. And after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news message of the kingdom of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. That's what fishermen do, right? And then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Then immediately, they immediately left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further from there, he saw James, sons of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also who also were in the boat, they were mending their nets. And immediately he called them and left their father, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes, now, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And there's so many things here. I just want to stop and talk about all of them. We're going to get into them. We're not even going to really get into this chapter per se today, but, man, that, that blows my mind. In the synagogue, in the church, with them, if you will, in this Jewish synagogue, there was a man with an unclean spirit. Not the place you would think a demon-possessed person to be, right? Consider that. And it says, and he cried out, saying, let us alone, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Do you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For what? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame throughout all of the region, uh, he, his fame spread throughout all the region of Galilee. Now, Verse 29, as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. And verse 32, at evening when the sun had set, they brought him to all who were sick and and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. And, and, and um, oh, i got to just stop. I want to add so many things here. Um, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and when they found him, they said, to him, everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all of Galilee and casting out demons. Now a leper, verse 40, came to him, imploring him, kneeling to him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched him and said to him, I am willing to be, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken him, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed and he strictly warned him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone but on your way, but go on your way and show yourself to the priest and offer for yourself cleansing, uh, for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Encourage you to go back to the book of Leviticus this last this next week and read um, what the law says about that, uh, what Jesus commanded this man in verse forty four. But anyway, in verse forty five it says, however, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the matter so openly, so, uh, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. They came to him from every direction. That's all one chapter. Can you believe that? I mean, when you start the other gospel accounts, there's none that's like this gospel account. It's like, boom, Jesus is here. He's there. He's doing that. It's like, you can't even keep up. It's like, how many years have passed here, right? It's like you're, you're taking it all in. And as, as, as we begin this, this chapter, I am so tempted to just go through and, and start teaching and explaining and expounding on all these wonderful things that we read here. But as most of you know, uh, I believe it's better to teach God's Word and not just teach from God's Word. We want to teach God's Word, not just teach from it. And, and this is the reason why the majority of the time that we gather together, you will hear God's Word being taught in this manner that we're going to continue through in the Gospel of Mark an expository way. Meaning we're going to go through one of the 66 books of the Bible, this one, of course, Mark, the Gospel of Mark. We're going to start at the beginning, and we're going to continue through this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, until we get to the end. 
And um, this morning we're going to start here, and we're going to finish, we're going to go through, there's 16 chapters, we're going to go through every single chapter, all 16, unless Jesus comes back first, I'm okay with that, Uh, and it could happen, isn't that a cool thought, that Jesus come back before we could finish this book. He could come back before we finish this study today. He could. Now, in order to help keep context, and this is where I'm struggling with this morning because I want to get into this chapter, but in order to keep context, help us keep context and gain a proper understanding as we set a foundation before we go through this book, um, this, this, this book um, that is a good news message, um, and, and to learn about the message that's written in it, I think it's important that we begin by talking about a few things. So if you're taking notes, this is what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about who the author is, author. We're going we're gonna, to uh, look at when the book was written, and you might think, why is that significant? And I'm going to explain to you the reason why. We're going to look at the time frame with which when it was written, to whom it was written to. That makes, a lot of, that makes a lot of difference. When we write, we don't write letters so much anymore, but we write emails. And if you, by chance, read someone else's mail or email, um, contextually knowing who it was written from and who it was written to helps you to discern correctly what is in the content of that letter. So we're going to see who it was written to. And then more importantly, or the most important thing perhaps, is what, what's the main theme of this letter? What's the goal? What's the purpose? What is the author trying to convey? What's the main thought, the main theme of this letter? And then with, well, I'm not going to say that because we're not going to have time left. That's going to pretty much consume all of it. But we're going to talk about some things. So first and foremost, the author. It says here, the gospel according to Mark in my Bible, right? And uh, this book bears the name of Mark because it's believed to have been written by Mark. Specifically, a man referred to in Scripture as John Mark. One in the same. Um, he's mentioned many times throughout the New Testament. However, however nowhere in the, the text of this book are we told that John Mark is the, the actual writer. And a lot of the, the New Testament letters will say, um, you know, that this has been written by Paul, or this has been written by Peter, or this has been written by John. Um, but that's not the case here. There's no uh, mark of identification saying that Mark was the one that is the writer. Nevertheless, when you study it out, it's widely believed that John Mark wrote this book because of some things that are found within the text. As you read through it, there's kind of key things that point us to this, that indicate it. But John Mark is mostly believed to be the result, the, the, the writer of this is a result of church history. And I, and I mean ancient church history, where we have ancient or, or we have um, original church fathers um, who have written books and they attribute this writing, this pinning, if you will, um, um, uh, to John Mark. And some of the early church fathers that record this in their writings is uh, Papyrus, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria and Origen, all of which who were disciples, firsthand disciples of the apostles. First century, firsthand people who could give a, 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 an eyewitness account as they were, they were um, followers, they were disciples of the apostles, all of these men that I just mentioned. And in, on their writings, they all declare that John Mark is to be the writer of this gospel. And so there's great great um, historical evidence that points to that as well. So 
about John Mark. What do we know about him? What do we know about Mark? And when we consider John Mark as the author, I think there are some interesting things to consider. Um, and it helps us to understand a little bit about the writing style, a little bit about what was put down here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course. But the first is the fact that he was a Jew. John Mark was a Jew. And he was a Jew who had accepted Jesus Christ as his Messiah, as his Lord and Savior. And, and, and what's also significant in that is that it appears that the Apostle Peter was the one who had led John Mark to believe that he shared the gospel message with him and he received God's gift of salvation that was made available by grace through faith in Jesus. And we determine this by what Peter writes about John Mark in his letter to the church in 1 Peter, specifically 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, where, where he, Peter, affectionately refers to John Mark as his son. And we know that he wasn't his, his, his son by blood, but he was a spiritual father to him. And when someone would refer to, to another person um, as their son, uh, spiritually speaking, it was because they were referring to them as someone whom they had led into the faith. My son, I led him into the faith. I shared this message with him, and he came to believe. And in this same passage, in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, a significant thing to note is that Peter at that time tells us that John Mark, who he affectionately refers to as his son, is with him. And that's significant when you read contextually about the time that, that Peter uh, wrote this letter and, and see what Peter was doing. Peter was in Rome, more than likely, at that time. And John Mark was with him, is what Peter says. And in the writings of the early church fathers, we're also told that John Mark was a close associate of Peter. There's other testimony to that. And that he was involved these early church fathers, they, they historically account that John Mark was involved with Peter in his ministry at Rome, and specifically he had the job of Peter's scribe. And so dots begin to connect here for us and, and how this, this, this gospel message came about. He, he was working as his scribe, and he was recording the sermons that Peter had spoke. And so we know also that that, that also happened for for with 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 Luke, right? And and um, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul, as he collected some of the writings and the testimony of the Apostle Paul, and we got the the Book of Acts as a result of that. But as a result, the Gospel of Mark is believed to be a collection of Peter's firsthand accounts of Jesus's life, Jesus's death, and Jesus's resurrection, which was then compiled by Mark from the sermons that. That Peter had preached. And in my Bible, I, next to the inscription at the beginning of this chapter of this book, it says the gospel according to Mark. And I wrote in here, I write in here, it's been there for a long time, as told by Peter. So that's a, that's a cool understanding that John Mark wrote it, but he's accounting, he's recording the words, the firsthand testimony of the apostle Peter. And, and when we understand that, we maybe see things a little bit differently because we know Peter. We know what he is like. We know what kind of man he was before and, and after the, he came to Christ and before and after the, the feeling of the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost. And consequently, this gospel is thought by many, many scholars and even referred to often as the gospel according to Peter. Now, in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, when we learn a little bit more about John Mark, is, is we see that John Mark you know, we, we, can, we can look at him and go, wow, he was led to the Lord by Peter. He was Peter's scribe. What a mighty man of faith. 
But what we realize is that Peter was just, that John Mark was just a man just like us, and in that he had struggles. He needed to grow spiritually. And we see this in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. We're told that, that in, 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 a, in a couple of instances, um, well, let me just say this. One thing we know is that John Mark's mom, I'll get to that other uh, statement I was going to make here in just a minute, but John Mark's mom, she was named Mary, and she was significant in the early church. And there are a lot of women named Mary in the early church, and sometimes it's hard to de- delineate between who is who, but John Mark's mom, Mary, what we're told is that in the book of Acts is that she had a large house in Jerusalem. And we know that the early church would meet together. They would go to synagogue on, on, on Saturday. They would continue in their Jewish traditions, but then on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, they would gather together, the church, those who believed in Christ. And there was a large contingency in Jerusalem who gathered together in John Mark's mom's house, Mary. And in fact, in Acts chapter 12, the reason why I refer to that chapter is because it records a time, if you remember, when Peter was arrested. A lot of the disciples early on were arrested by the Pharisees after Jesus' death and resurrection when they were sent out. And they were they were told that they couldn't preach the name of Jesus, and yet they continued to do so. And Peter was, was arrested, but in Acts chapter 12, it tells about how he was supernaturally delivered from prison by an angel. And um, it says that Peter's chains, that angel had come to him, his chains had fallen off, that the angel led him out of the prison, past the first guard, past the second guard, undetected. And then when the angel disappeared, and it says that, that Peter came to himself... You can imagine that would be like a surreal experience. There you are in prison, you're chained. Next thing you know, your chains fall off. There's an angel and he's walking you past the guards and they don't even see you. And he says when he came to himself, he realized and he walked to John Mark's mom's house. And, and if you remember, that's where the church had been gathered. And they were gathered there praying for Peter's release. In fact, Peter's banging on the door and someone answers it. And they're, they're like, they're like, he, he realized, Peter goes, he goes into the church and they're like, who's out there? It's like, it's Peter. And it's like, go let him in. He, he couldn't believe that it was Peter there at the door. It's a cool account. But according to Colossians chapter 4, one of the things that we also know about John Mark is he's the, bro, he's the cousin of Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. That's what we're told about Barnabas in Acts chapter 4. And, and, and the son of of, of the, the, the cousin of Barnabas, and this man, Barnabas, who's given this title, the son of encouragement, he was the one in Acts chapter 4, we're told, who initially sold his land and gave the proceeds to the apostles as a gift to the early church. And this Barnabas was the one who also accompanied the apostle Paul on his first missionary journey through Asia Minor. And it was that relationship that, that John Mark had with Barnabas that allowed or opened the door for John Mark in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, to go on that first missionary journey to the Gentiles that Paul was sent out to um, into Asia Minor. And, and what we know is, is that in Acts chapter 13 is that, that this is where John Mark ran into a little bit of trouble. Because when they left the island of Cyprus, that things were, were difficult. You know, there was great difficulties that they faced. And, and John Mark didn't continue. He flaked out. He's, oh, I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. And he went back to Jerusalem. And, John, and then Peter, or excuse me, Paul and, um, 
Barnabas were, were left to finish the journey on their own. And sadly, it was this decision, this, this spiritually immature decision by John Mark that would become a point of contention later on, right, by Paul and Barnabas. And when they, Paul and Barnabas, prepared for a second missionary trip through Asia Minor, Barnabas wanted to take his cousin, his younger cousin, John Mark, along with him again. The one who had quit in the middle of that first trip. He wanted to give him a second chance. He had noticed some changes in him, but, but Paul didn't want that. Matter of fact, there was a, an argument that, that um, came about as a result of it, and there was a split between Paul and Barnabas. And Paul ended up taking Silas with him on that second missionary journey, and yet Barnabas still went out. And said Barnabas went out on that, on a, on, in, in, into Asia Minor, but he went out with John Mark at that time on their own. And, and what we later find out is that Barnabas was right to give John Mark, the one who pinned this, the one who was the scribe of Peter later in, in life, he, he was right to give him the second chance because he'd grown. He did, he did better. He was able to complete that secondary, second missionary journey. In fact, so much so that the Apostle Paul would later write about John Mark in two passages of Scripture, in Philemon verse 24 and in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11, and he speaks highly, he speaks well of John Mark at the end of Paul's life. Now when we consider these things and we move into this idea of this, this under, trying to come up with when was it written? When was the book written? Um, and when we consider when the gospel was written, it's important to point out this, that all four of the gospel accounts are believed to have been written before 70 A.D., all four of them. And this is due to the fact that in 70 A.D., there's a significant event that happened. What was it? Does anybody know? Yeah, the temple was destroyed. And, and, and there's no mention of this major event, this significant event in any of the gospel accounts. And it's not only significant to Jewish history that we look back on, but it's also significant to the, to the life of Jesus Christ, which would have been accounted in here, is because Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, saying that not one stone would be left upon itself. And we know when you study out history, that's exactly what happened. But, but none of that, that is recorded in, none of that part of that event is recorded in any of the gospel accounts. And if it had happened, um, if these had been written after the 70 AD time frame with that significant event, it would reason to conclude that the writers would have mentioned as a fulfillment, another fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy. So when we consider the dates of the gospels, what we know is that they've been arranged in our Bible in accordance to the order of when they were believed to be written. Did you know that? We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're arranged in our text uh, upon a belief of when they were written. Of course, Matthew being the oldest, Matthew being the first, and is believed to have been written between 50 and 55 A.D., and this is based upon some archaeological discoveries, and specifically um, the uh, Magdalene papyrus. And you may have heard of that. I don't know, but you can go look it up. But it's possibly the earliest known fragments of the New Testament that we have, the Magdalene papyrus. And some say of any book that we have, any book, the oldest archaeological find of ancient um, uh, literature. Now, um, and in that, in that Magdalene papyrus, there are fragments of, of, the, of Matthew's gospel, and, and it's been dated to, 
to, to 50 to 55 AD. Um, uh, so the, the first is, um, now with the Gospel of Mark is believed to have been written next, and there's two main reasons that I want to give you for that today. The first is that um, in accordance to the writings of the church fathers, they tell us that Mark wrote it after Peter's death. So he had been with Peter, he had been a scribe, he compiled all these these documents, all the sermons of Peter, and then the, the early church fathers say that, that Mark compiled this gospel account after Peter's death, and we know historically that that would happen in 64 AD. 64 AD. So there's a window that begins to open up for us. But also we, we know that um, because of other archaeological evidences, one significant find not too many years ago in a cave, you may have heard of it there in Israel, right? the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were found in the, the Qumran Caves. Um, and, and those have been dated um, uh, to 68 AD. And there's copies, there's fragments of the, of the Gospel of Mark found in those Dead Sea Scrolls. Really, really, really cool. And so we understand that the Gospel of Mark was written in the first century, and that's the significant part of dating. It was... It was Written in the first century, somewhere between 64 A.D., the death of Peter, and 68 A.D., where we have um, uh, an, an actual copy of the Gospel of Mark that dates back to that. And the reason for why this is so important, because this dating supports the fact that the Gospel, according to Mark, has what we refer to as apostolic authority. Apostolic authority. And apostolic authority is what is needed in order to be considered Scripture, meaning that what it says, what is written in here, reflects first-hand eyewitness accounts that could either be confirmed or denied by the apostles who were still alive and who had been witnesses to Jesus' death, life, death, and resurrection. In other words, in other words what Mark had wrote could have been brought before the apostles who walked with Jesus and said, no, that's not right, or yes, it is right. So there's authenticity that can be given to that. In light of this, I want to briefly point out really quickly that, that this is one of the many reasons with the quote-unquote secret gospel accounts. Have you guys ever heard of that? There was a movie not too many years ago. I don't even want to mention the name of it. it was, it's a good theatrical movie, but in regards to any kind of reality in, 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 in historical truth or, or even religious history, it's whacked out. But um, there's no secret gospels, right? And you may have heard of them. And, and, and there's just a few mentioned in that movie, but there's lots of them. There's the, there's the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, the Apocryphon of James, and, and others such like them. Um, uh, but, but none of these, these, these so-called secret gospels have made it into Scripture for a couple of reasons. None of them can be dated back to the first century. They were written much later than that. And by the way, they were all written by a group of people, a sect called Gnostics. And, and I don't have time to get into all that, but go look up Gnosticism and the Gnostics, and, 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 and you will understand why they're not considered to be canonical um, to Scripture. They, they, they couldn't be dated back to the first, hand, first century, and so therefore they could never be confirmed or denied by the eyewitness accounts. There's a huge 
uh, importance in that. As a result, they don't have apostolic authority, these secret gospels, because none of the apostles were alive in the second century or later, right, to confirm or deny the things documented by them or, as, or, or things that were supposedly taught um, as being what Jesus said or, or what Jesus did. So they cannot be considered reliable. They cannot consider to be the inspired word of God. And they're not. So there you go. Consequently, it's just one of the reasons why they've not been put in the scriptures. But Mark has, and the dating of that supports it. Now, the main theme, here's where we get to some of the nitty-gritty, the main theme of the Gospel of Mark. And when we're talking about the Gospel accounts, we do understand that the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and of course, um, we know the Gospel of John, but the, these first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're commonly referred to as the synoptic, as a synoptic Gospels. What does that mean? It means that they're similar. They're similar. They're similar as they each offer a detailed historical account of the life, of the death, and of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only one of the four Gospels is different in that seven times in John's Gospel, there is the recorded I am statements that Jesus spoke of himself. John's the only one that records those I am statements about Jesus. And this is due to the fact that the Holy Spirit's main message if you will, the main theme or the main message of the Gospel of John is to point to us to, to reveal to us the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Literally to point us to the fact that Jesus is God who came down to earth in order to save mankind. That's the motive. That's the reason for the writing of the Gospel of John. Does it record the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus like the other Gospel accounts? Yes, it does. But the emphasis is on Jesus being God. And, and that's why these seven I am statements are added to the Gospel of John and they're not found in the other ones. And this morning I just want to briefly go over those because I think it also sets the stage for Mark's Gospel for us in preparation for what we're going to read and study through. Maybe you know them, the, the I am statements of Jesus. First one is in John chapter 6 where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And what does that mean by saying that Jesus being the Son of God, God in the flesh, He alone can sustain us. You know, we are, we are literally spiritually, the Bible says, starving beggars looking for food to live on. And Jesus is the bread of life. Likewise, in John chapter 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. And Jesus is the original and the eternal source of light in the universe for all of us who are spiritually blind. The Bible says that we were once dead. We walked in darkness, but not no longer. After coming to Christ, we're in the light as he is in the light, as he is the light. He also said in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the gate of the sheepfold. I am the door, right? And Jesus is the only door to life. The only way in, the only way in is through Jesus. And, and we know that when we're outside, we're lost. And the awesome thing about Jesus being the, the gate of the shepherd, he also says in John chapter 10 that I'm the, 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 the good shepherd, meaning we were blind, we were in darkness, we were lost, we were starving. And Jesus, being the good shepherd, 
came. He, he came and He brought us into the sheepfold. He brought us into the light. He, he's, he sustained us through His own life. And Jesus knows and cares for those who are wandering. Us who are wandering sheep without a shepherd. Jesus also said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And Jesus is the key to escaping spiritual death. The only key. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, He said. I am the resurrection and the life. And without him, we're, Scripture makes it clear, we're doomed. We're doomed to death. Why? Because of our sin. But yet there's a way. I am the resurrection and I am the life. He also said, I already mentioned in conjunction with it, I jumped ahead, but John chapter 14, the sixth I am statement of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And what does that simply mean? Jesus is the acceptable path. He's the path that we must travel on. He, he illuminates the truth on this path. He's the giver of life for us who are lost, who are ignorant, who are dead without Him. And then lastly, in John chapter 15, in this, this Gospel of John, which is different than the other threes in this way, Jesus said, I am the true vine. And what does that mean? It means that, that the, we know the parable or the, the instruction there. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. That there's, there's no life found for us apart from Him. Jesus is because He is God in the flesh. He is the giver of life. He's the sustainer of life. He's the source of all life. This, you know, this eternal life that we have in Him because we were dead and we are useless branches apart from Him. And even though the other three Gospels are similar to each other, they are different in each other uh, different from each other in that each one of the gospel accounts, like the gospel of John, also has a different core message, a different theme that it's referring to. We're in a specific attribute of Jesus Christ, who is God, is being made known to us. Here's what I mean. For example, the gospel of Matthew's main theme reveals the fact that Jesus is the King of the Jews. And we know that coinciding with that, that ultimately he's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. The one who's descended from the lineage of David, of the tribe of Judah, the rightful heir to the throne of David. The lion from the tribe of Judah. And this is why, why Matthew's Gospel begins with the genealogy of Jesus that traces him back to King David as King David's descendant. So he's the Son of God who came in the flesh. And in the flesh he is descended from David, the rightful heir to the throne. An everlasting throne, by the way. And the key verse in the, the Gospel of Matthew that relates this to us and centers this on this point is Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, which says, Where is he who has been born the King of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And likewise, the Gospel of Luke his main theme point points us to the humanity of Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's the King of kings, but He's also human. The fact that Jesus, who is God, is also fully man. And this is why Jesus referred, is referred to in Luke's Gospel account as the Son of Man 26 different times. Luke wants us to know He is a man. Fully man, fully God. He's not denying the deity of, of Jesus Christ. He's only affirming to us that He is also fully man. And by this, the Holy Spirit shows us that Jesus is God who came down to earth, who came in the form of a man. Why? In order to pay a debt that no other man could pay. 
but also to show us that he, God, came in the flesh so that he might relate to us, identify with us. He knows what it's like to be us. To be us. And this is why Luke's gospel begins with the genealogy of Jesus that traces him beyond the genealogy of David, past David, and on to Adam, the first man. Go and look and read it. It's pretty cool. Where all, all men, all men have descended from. And the humanity, the humanity of Jesus, we think, why is that important? Because it serves two specific purposes. And the first is to show us this, that God desires to know us. That should blow your mind. I mean, you can think about that. God, the creator of everything, the self-existent one who has always been and always will be, desires to know us. So much so that he came to be a part of us, to live among us, to make himself known to us. He desires to know us. And he desires for us to know him, that he knows that He's a, the, for us to know that he's a God who understands what we go through, right? This is what we read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. It says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, our faith. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all ways tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. Let us therefore then, what do we do? Paul says, we come boldly, to his presence, to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need. The other reason for why God came in the flesh was for the purpose of saving us. He had to come in the flesh for saving us. A descendant of man from what all sin, from Adam, from where all sin originated, because the fact of the matter is that we, all of us, like Adam, that we've sinned, we've gone astray, all other human beings who are Adam's descendants because of our sin, we owe a debt, the Bible says, Right? We owe a debt that we could not repay as a result of our sin. And the payment to settle that debt is our life. The day that you sin, God said to Adam and Eve, the day that you eat of this tree, this day that you rebel on me, surely death will enter in. And death did enter in when Adam sinned. And sin is punishable by death, but God wanted to save us. The problem is, is none of us could do what needed to be done to save ourselves or to save anyone else for that matter. God wanted to save us, so what did he do? He became a man. Even though he was tempted in all ways that we have been tempted, he lived a sinful life. And with that sinful life, he offered up himself as a substitute sacrifice so that we might live. Therefore, Jesus being the only sinless and perfect Son of Man, he has the power to save us and the will to save us. That's what we see from the Gospel of of Luke. He has a will to save us. And the key verse in the Gospel of Luke that relates to this is Luke 19.10 where it says, For the Son of Man Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. And so with these things in mind, we come back to the Gospel of Mark. And the main theme of this good news account reveals to us the fact that Jesus is the servant of man. I don't know about you, but that statement in myself, I don't completely understand it, but it should just cause your mind to just... Mark wants us to know, Peter, if that's the case, as compiled by Mark through the Holy Spirit, inspiration and guidance and leading of the Holy Spirit, wants us to know that Jesus 
is the servant of man. And this is the reason for why Mark's gospel does not have a genealogy in it. Why, why would you say that? Because no one cares where a servant comes from. When I began reading chapter 1, you might have noticed I pointed out to you, right, multiple times and multiple times that Mark uses this word immediately. And in total, the word immediately, which is the Greek word yothosis, is used 42 times in these 16 chapters. The rate at which we saw things take place in this first chapter doesn't slow down all the way to the end. Immediately, immediately, immediately. And Mark does this in order to point out the fact that as the servant of God, Jesus is on it. And sometimes we don't feel like, God, where are you at? Jesus, don't you see what's going on? This book should remind you and, and point out that he's our servant. Again, and he's on it. He's meeting needs. He's going from place to place, doing the work of God. And for this reason, the Gospel of Mark is a busy book. It's a busy book. And in this account, we'll see how Jesus as a servant seems the busiest out of all the other accounts. He's, he's quickly moving from one vent to another, and we know that there's a lot of other things that are going on in between these things that Mark writes about, but that's not the reason for why he's written it. He's written this to show us that Jesus is the servant of man. A man, busy meeting needs, busy being God's Messiah. Furthermore, as we make our way through this gospel of Mark, Mark pictures Jesus in action. He's in action. And, and in doing so, we see that the emphasis is put on the deeds of Jesus more than it is on the words of Jesus. What did Jesus do? Not just what Jesus said. And like the other gospel accounts, the key verse that, that identifies that or reveals that to where Mark himself says, this is why I wrote it. And he relates this key main theme to us is in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where, where, where Jesus himself says this, Mark records it, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the Gospel of Mark is a testimony which testifies of Jesus and, and who he is and what he did as the suffering servant who came to serve and save us by giving his life for ours. If the worship team wants to come up, I want to end with this this morning. As we consider these things in preparation, hopefully you feel prepared to go through it. One last thing I will ask that you will do. Sometime this week, if you've not already done it, make the time. It'll take you maybe an hour and a half. If you're a slow reader, a little bit longer. Sit down in one setting. Don't get up to do anything. Start at chapter 1, verse 1, and read it all the way through. All 16 chapters, all verses. And engulf and, and, and yourself in, in, in the message as, you've been, as, you've been deline as it's been distinguished and identified here. And as we consider these things in preparation for our study of the gospel according to Mark, we should be challenged, I think, in two fundamental or, 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 or foundational ways. Two ways um, we should be challenged in. The first is in regards to reflection. And understanding. We want to reflect so we understand. And what is that? When we see that Jesus is the servant of God who came to serve us by giving his life for us, we should understand this. We should reflect on this. The great, amazing love. The depth of the great and amazing love that Jesus has for us. Wow. 
You should go, if this is my Jesus, you should feel love wrapped up in his arms. For Jesus is the Holy Son of God who lived a sinless life. Jesus is the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. Jesus is the great I Am. And He set aside all glory, the Bible says, to come to this earth. Why? In order to serve and save us by giving His life for us. He set it all aside. And the second thing that we should be challenged to consider in preparation for our study through Mark is the fact that Jesus calls us who called upon His name, His disciples, to be like Him. He calls us to be like Him, to follow His example, to be servants, the servants of God who exercise the same humility that Jesus exampled in His service to us. To lay down our lives, to lay down our plans, to lay down our will, to lay down our desires for God's. And with this in mind, to not be offended when we're treated like a servant. Father God, thank you, Lord, for this gospel message. Lord, I'm excited to be able to dig into it with my church family. Lord, I pray that through your Holy Spirit you'd prepare us, that you would teach us. Lord, that we would be known as you have made yourself known to us. So we'd be known as lovers of God, lovers of others, and your servants for a kingdom that is greater than any kingdom that is on this earth. Father, we love you and we, pray, we praise you and we offer ourselves up to you again in Jesus' name. Amen.